Hello and welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 101. And I'm here with Jessica Kerr. Good morning, 101, yay! I am happy to be here with Jamie Hampton. Thank you, Jess, for your enthusiasm. And I'm also happy to be here with my friend Coraline, whose name doesn't start with J. Oh no, Joraline. <laughs> Joraline. <laughs> Joraline. And our guest today, Jonia Gupta. No. <laughs> I am I am so excited about today. Um, our guest is Sonia Gupta, a dear friend of mine. Sonia is currently a software developer in Denver. Prior to becoming a developer, Sonia was a lawyer in Louisiana. She served as a public defender in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, then as a prosecutor, and finally as an assistant attorney general doing torts and civil rights litigation. Sonia is an outspoken advocate of diversity and inclusion in tech and in life. She's passionate about fostering empathetic and effective communication on engineering teams and believes that even if tech can't always change the world, technologists absolutely can. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be with all of you. So Sonia, we always start out our episodes by asking our guests a simple question. What is big O notation? I already made that joke. I can't make that joke again. Crap. <laughs> Just make the same joke every every week until we actually start asking about big O notation. Yeah. <laughs> so I have you- an answer for you. Oh. Okay. <laughs> it's a thing that is not important to know during an interview. <laughs> Amen. Nice. I think we're going to leave that in. <laughs> Um, Sonia, for real, our first question to our guests is always, what is your superpower and how did you develop it? My superpower would be uh, these days talking about uh, white supremacy and um, dealing with the fallout from talking about that. So I've learned to kind of pick up some tools and ways to deal with the issue and ways to deal with the anger that it inspires to talk about white supremacy um, in a lot of white people. So yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing lately. Certainly requires superhuman effort, I would imagine. It's a it's a challenge because you know people who have written about this at length. There's something called white fragility that becomes invoked largely in white people, but also in other people because we've all been indoctrinated into a system of thinking, and so it tends to like trigger this defensiveness in people when I talk about white supremacy really openly and frankly. And I understand that. So there are ways to sort of have the conversation effectively, but I also think it's really important to make sure that people of color are heard um, and not um, have you know our voices tamped down. So sometimes you know, it means having hard conversations that feel really uncomfortable for everybody, myself included. And Sonia, I follow you on Twitter, obviously. And um, I see a lot of the thoughtful posts that you make. And I also noticed that you are not afraid to take down people who disagree with you in vitriolic ways. Is that like part of your coping mechanism for dealing with with hatred? It is part of a coping mechanism, but what it really is, is that I've realized when you believe in a cause and you understand where you're coming from and have explored it a lot and experienced it, but also studied it, you start to, and I think Coraline, you can probably understand this really well, you start to understand that you are just right about it, right? There is a right and a wrong in a lot of different scenarios. And so to feel that rightness inside of me and to know that I am saying the right things and that I am expressing the right opinions and educating people in that way gives me kind of like some force behind what I do. So when I'm disagreeing with people, it's often just because they're wrong (laughs) and there is a lot of hatred in what they're saying. There are people that do have really nuanced takes and who are respectful and want to have a good conversation. And those are people that I'm less likely to be vitriolic with or, or kind of take them down. But you know what? Unfortunately, that's not the majority. The vast majority of people are just really angry when I talk about these issues, especially in the tech community. What's been interesting to me is to find that there are people who are really open to discussing these issues. And I love that. That's part of, you know, when you said in my bio, like that technologists absolutely can change the world that I really do believe that. And I, that's been my experience is speaking with people in tech who get these issues, who are willing to be uncomfortable, who are willing to do the work to kind of overcome and dismantle white supremacy in tech. But there is a whole other contingency, and I would put them kind of in the, you know, the James Damore category, um, classical liberals, (laughs) people who are really resistant and deeply, deeply racist that live and work and thrive in our industry. And a lot of those people are very anonymous online. 
and you know a lot, you know, you've you've been on the receiving end of a lot of those people too, Coraline, I suspect. So every now and then, just occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> just once in a while. Just whenever <laughs> Linux adopts a could of conduct or something like that. Every it happens. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I really like what you said about knowing that you're right and have letting that be like the force behind what you say. But like I guess what I'm wondering is I don't want to ask, like, how do you know that you're right? Because, like, I understand that. But, like, how do you get to the point where you feel that rightness inside of you? Because I feel like there are things that I've struggled with where it's like, I know this is right, but I'm still so self-conscious about these things about myself that, like, I've taken shit from other people about. Or, like, even though I know that, like, I'm I'm not bad because of X, Y, Z, people being bigoted to me, I feel like knowing that and then being able to internalize it in a way that it gives power to you is like different. And that's kind of what I'm asking about. That's a really excellent question. I'm glad you asked it because what I think that you've experienced and what I've also experienced and anybody who speaks up about issues of social justice experiences on a regular basis is gaslighting. That constant self-doubt, are my experiences real? Am I making this up? Is this all in my head? And that is something that um, power structures, I think, impose on us, right? So people who are underrepresented tend to fall prey to gaslighting because we are told that everything about us, right, that everything about us is less than the way that we think, the way that we dress, the way that we look, the people we choose to love, that all of those choices are less than. And over time, what that does, I suspect, and I'm not a scientist or a sociologist, but I'm speaking from my own experience, is that it teaches us to question whether we're right. One of the things that has happened to me is to help me to kind of, and I think it happened, it it hasn't just happened to me, it's happened to all of us, to understand this rightness um, is just looking around at the world right now. I think so many things have happened in the last couple of years that have thrown really into stark contrast the world that we live in and forced all of us um, in a really uncomfortable, disgusting, gross way to confront white supremacy at its root because we see it on our televisions every day. We see it in our governing institutions every day. I see it. And I've had to do the work on both ends and I'm still doing it. There's no like arriving. I hate it when people say, you know, that person is woke. I don't think wokeness is a a state that you achieve. It's a process that you try to get to. So it's a constant. And what I've realized about that sense of rightness, it comes from having to do my work to unpack my own internalized white supremacy, while also hopefully being an advocate for other people of color. Because as a person of South Asian descent, I do have privilege in this like false hierarchy that white supremacy has built. So I'm able to use that privilege, hopefully, to give voice to those who have less of it. So seeing what happens in the world and seeing the effect that my words have had over the last couple of years has really helped to further cement this idea that I absolutely am right in what I'm saying. And even if it's scary to feel that way, and even if I have voices calling for you know me to go back to India, calling me all sorts of things, um, sending me horrible pictures of you know aborted fetuses, and telling me you know that I should be beaten or die. None of that actually matters anymore. And sometimes those horrible voices just further cement the belief that I am saying the right things because it is really scary to consider dismantling this construct that we've lived with and that kind of infects every aspect of our life. I can definitely say that the harassment and abuse that I get is motivating in a strange way. I hate reading it. I hate hearing about it. I hate seeing it quote tweeted. I hate that it infects every area of my public life. But In my opinion, if you're not making people angry, you're not really doing your job. Yeah. And you know what else, Jamie? I think what helps me to feel right is that think about what you're advocating for. Really go down to it. So we are advocating for, and I am advocating for, the tolerance of people and the tolerance of acceptance of everybody, right? If you think about what other people on the other side of you and us are advocating for, probably it's intolerance of that, right? So some people probably heard of the paradox of tolerance, right? That there is a limit to which tolerance can go, right? It's not meant to, you're not meant to tolerate bigotry or tolerate intolerance. And so I always think, you know, what I'm advocating for is not violence, it's acceptance. And it's the feeling that everybody should feel like they can belong, regardless of their identity, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of who they love. And if the people that are yelling at me are advocating for the opposite of that, there's no way that they're right. 
because that is just pure hatred. And I can feel that in my bones. So there's an emotional drive there, but there's also kind of a logical drive to this as well. You talked a little bit about seeing the effects that you've been able to have by doing what you're doing over the last few years. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. One of the things that's been really awesome is getting particularly young women of color who are just starting out in the industry who will write me letters saying thank you, that they feel more emboldened to speak up in their day-to-day lives, um, not just online, and that they feel that they have a voice uh, when they read the things that I write. And that means a lot to me to have I've collected. I was inspired by Coraline, actually, to start collecting these messages and keep them in a list so that I'm reminded. So that's been one effect that I know that I've had. Another is that what I've been able to see happen is that the more people that I connect with who also feel this way and who have these voices as well, who are also speaking up about white supremacy, we have a lot of power together. And what we end up doing is creating opportunities for each other and connecting each other to other opportunities. So for this right now, being able to speak on this amazing podcast is an opportunity that has been a byproduct of speaking up against white supremacy. And there have been other opportunities, you know, speaking engagements to have the chance to sort of spread this message to a wider audience and make it more acceptable. Because the more we talk about it, the less discomfort we feel. So those are just some of the, uh, the effects that I think that I've seen happening over the last couple of years. And also just for myself internally, I feel like I am doing what I'm meant to do. I love being a developer uh, a lot, but my advocacy will always take precedence. And that's meant, you know, that I've alienated myself probably or that others have alienated me. I don't know from certain parts of the industry, but that's okay with me. Um, That's a price that I'm willing to pay because it means that I've kind of whittled down um, the people that do see this and understand it and understand what I'm trying to do. So that's been kind of like a less fun side effect of the advocacy that I do, but it's always going to be there when you do any kind of advocacy that matters. Okay. I I have a question and I'm not entirely comfortable even asking this because I don't disagree with you at all on white supremacy um, or, or like those evils in the system. But you said that, and I'm, I'm exaggerating and I'm taking this further, but one way to hear something you said a minute ago is that because you're right and you're advocating for tolerance, anyone who disagrees with you is advocating for intolerance. Any opposing view is pure hatred. Um, okay. That, that mean, it, it, if I disagree with you on some small point, I really want to keep quiet about it because does that mean hatred? Advocating for self-interest and for group interest, even more so group interest, is very human. But that doesn't mean it's optimal. It doesn't mean it's like the biggest, most generous and best thing we can do. But it is normal and it doesn't come out of hatred. I'm not arguing that that hatred doesn't exist in the system. But, I mean, do, do you really mean that anyone who disagrees with you is full of hatred? Uh, I don't think that that's what I said or what I mean. I think that a lot of people that disagree with me are full of hatred. Um, and some people are just ignorant, unfortunately. Um, a lot of us are ignorant. I used to be more ignorant about these issues than I was may- maybe two years ago, right? So there are some people who are just hateful. Um, they don't deserve my emotional labor or energy. But there are people who really are trying to learn. And so in terms of, you know, you said something interesting that I think is worth addressing, this idea of advocating for one's in-group, right? So we're all part of in-groups, all of us, right? Whatever we identify as. And maybe those are even sometimes not just identities. Those are just our friends, the people that we like, the people we hang out with, the people that do the things that we do. They may not look like us. So there are different in-groups. One of the things that I've learned um, in the research that I've done, because I want to have, you know, a basis for my opinions, obviously, um, is that we aren't hardwired to discriminate on the basis of race. So we are hardwired to have biases, but not on the basis of race. So we might have biases based on, you know, what climate someone came from or what part of the world they're from. But when it comes to the issue of race, which, you know, that's a social construct that was invented by whiteness, and that's a whole other issue altogether. We don't have those hardwired biases. So what I try to do is there are some people that are worth addressing, right? Some people that I definitely think are just disagreeing to disagree. And often the premise that they're starting from is one that is 
coming out of a white supremacist premise, right? So the question is coming from a white supremacist perspective. We live in this culture. The white supremacist perspective is the default. It is. And so those folks tend to come in those two flavors, right? People that are just really hateful um, and will never listen. And then there are those who are also really um, just don't know. But what I see often happening, even with people that don't know, is they start off wanting to know, but the minute that I push them or that someone else pushes back in this sense of, listen, you're going to have to be uncomfortable while we have this conversation because that's where growth comes from, I get a lot of defensiveness. And often, unfortunately, some of the people that have lashed out at me in the worst ways are white women. And there are a lot of theories on why that is the case. Ruby uh, Hamid wrote a really excellent article on white women's tears. But that's not someone who's marching in the streets carrying a tiki torch, right? That's the person that I'm working with next to me at a desk. Or that's the person that, you know, I'm in line behind at, at a coffee shop. That's my, my day-to-day. Those are day-to-day people. And so that kind of interaction is really damaging to me. So I have to defend myself against that as well. So I don't think everybody that disagrees necessarily with me is wrong, but it matters how they're disagreeing and where that disagreement is coming from. So it's it's tricky sometimes to figure out who is who in this battle. <laughs> so Nia, you talked about in-group empathy, and this is something that I've also done some research on for my book. And the studies about in-group versus out-group empathy are really interesting, and they seem to indicate that the only antidote to in-group empathy is by exposure to people who you at first consider your out-group, but it's about broadening your definition of what your in-group is to encompass more people. Do you have mm-hmm. a feeling on that? I do. I think there are some limits, um, and this kind of also goes back to what Jessica asked One of the things that people often neglect to address when we talk about these kinds of injustices is power dynamics. So I have said, and I will continue to say, that people of color cannot be racist towards white people. The reason being is that racism is a a system of oppression that includes a power dynamic in addition to the prejudice inherent in it. So I think that that as well, that idea of pushing your boundaries and sort of like learning Um, more about the outgroup, right? Exposing yourself to different ideas. That power dynamic also needs to be taken into account for the people that we're asking that of. Because I think that there's a difference between asking me to be more cognizant of the views of white supremacists who are an outgroup for me, right? Than it is to ask white supremacists to be more cognizant of what I'm talking about when I talk about anti-racism is because the power structure is different there, right? Um, White supremacy has the power in this situation. I have less of it. And anybody who's advocating against white supremacy also has less of that power. And so to ask, I think, people who have less of that power to educate themselves about an outgroup that has more power can be really damaging, I think. Um, Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And it's not what I was suggesting at all, but rather the people who you were talking about who mm-hmm. in principle at least start out agreeing with you or, or find something about your words interesting and then suddenly get very defensive. Yeah. I feel like they're reverting back to their in-group and they're not extending empathy to you. That's true. I think that's true. And I think it's a very human response, actually. So one of the things that happens, I think, in the process of becoming an advocate, and I call myself an advocate more than an activist, um, because advocate fits, like I think, the what I do more. I'm not always going to protests and marching, um, which I think are very active pursuits. A lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to change ideologies. So what I've noticed in the course of my advocacy is that I think I started with a lot of a lot more piss and vinegar, <laughs> and over time, as my views have become more nuanced and as I've started to understand. Um, what it means to be an effective advocate, I still have some of the piss and vinegar, and sometimes it's fun to just sort of like do some stress relief on white supremacists, <laughs> but uh, also trying to be a little bit more approachable. It can be hard because these are like topics that affect me personally, so there's an emotional investment there. But dealing with people that are defensive, it's you know it's it's kind of something that I've expected, and now I'm more surprised when people aren't defensive. And what I have started to see is sometimes people that were initially defensive are willing to come back and try again because you have to keep doing that. You have to keep coming back and 
beating down those defensive tendencies. Um, I've had to do it. Like I catch myself and I have a little kind of suggestion for people that feel that defensiveness. This is what I do when I feel it um, is I check in with myself and ask myself where in my body I'm actually physically feeling it. It's usually in my chest. It's like a tightness that I feel in my chest when some, someone says something that doesn't comport with my like preconceived notions of what life should be, right? Like my view system has, my belief system has just been, you know, challenged. So I check in with my, you know, myself physically, but I then examine what was just said. So there's two possibilities. Maybe what the person said was just flat out wrong. So if someone says like white people are the best and people of color suck, I don't feel that tightening in my chest anymore because that's just a really like ignorant and facile take, right? It's, it's simplistic. It doesn't have any weight. But if someone is, to, you know, challenges me in a more subtle way, um, let me see if I can think of an example of that. Um, okay, I would say that Jessica challenged me in a subtle way. And that was actually really instructive for me because I started to feel that like tension in my chest, like what's what's coming and what am I going to be able to say in response to it? Is this something that's going to make me question my the way that I approach things, my own belief system? Um, so to check in and to breathe through it and be patient and listen, like really listen to what's being asked and what's being said before I make a judgment about it. So Jamie, you had a question? Yeah, it's actually very related to this idea of like being or not being defensive and like trying to look at things with nuance. I guess this is kind of a question about intersectionality and kind of starting to look a little bit more at what you were saying in the last little piece of the discussion about like in groups with more or less power dynamic. Okay. So this is a, something that happened to me a while ago, actually like almost a couple of years ago at this point, but it's been like weighing on me ever since then. And I really think that it's very important for like, if you're a white person and a person of color accuses you of being racist, I think it's really important to like be very thoughtful about why that is rather than just getting defensive about being called racist. Um, but I had a situation where a few people online kind of wanted to say some things to me about being racist um, because I'm transgender. And they were like, white people aren't allowed to be transgender because it's appropriative of other cultures. And maybe when you grow up and stop being so racist, you'll realize that you're not really transgender and how you're hurting other people's communities. And I really, really struggled with that because I was like, I can't respond to these people. Like you called me racist and I'm not because I'm so uncomfortable with the concept of that. But then I was also like, here are a bunch of cisgender people giving me shit about being trans in a way that was hurtful to me. And like, it was the first time I really thought about intersectionality in quite that personal way. And I wasn't able to engage with that conversation at all um, because I was upset. And I guess it's been a long time and I'm still, I guess, upset about it. And I'm bringing it up as a conversation point about like how can you navigate these kind of intersectional in-group issues when you have multiple different marginalized groups of people that have different problems that are coming to a, like a head about them in this kind of way that I described. Does that make sense as a question? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and Jamie, I want to say like, thank you for asking this question. It's really awesome. And I hear you. Um, and I'm super, super sorry that you had to go through that because as a person of color, I cannot, first of all, I've never heard this argument that being transgender is culturally appropriative. I've find that personally ludicrous that biology can be you know culturally appropriated that's just my my take on things i'm maybe i'll get some heat for that after i say this and the podcast comes out but I've, i i can't agree with that i think who told you i think the people that told you that were wrong yeah that that upsets me actually that you ex you went through this experience you shouldn't have had to go through that so you know when it comes to these ideas of intersectionality i think we have to be really especially respectful. One of the things that I've found is actually extreme kinship with my transgender friends. And Coraline have talked, and I have talked a little bit about this. I think I have some theories about it, that there is a feeling of not being accepted in one's own body by the world that we live in. And the fact that I feel that kinship with my transgender sisters and brothers is that 
that that upsets me even more about what you went through. So I hope that you will take this alternative viewpoint that it's possible that people of color get it wrong sometimes too, right? We all do. All of us are going through this process together. I think all of us are going to make mistakes in this process. Beverly D'Angelo talks about that in her book, White Fragility, which I recommend every white person and person of color read. And she starts with the premise that, yep, you know, white people were racist. Okay. And, right. So if you get stuck and hung up on the word, you know, I'm racist, then no growth comes after that. So you just accept hey, I'm racist. Now let me see what I can do about it to become a better person and become an advocate. But that isn't always the case, right? Like that, that I think what you went through and what happened to you in that situation was inappropriate. And it might have been just sort of a misuse of, of the term, because not everything and not every word um, is always racist. I'd say the vast majority of the interactions that we have absolutely are. But that presumption is is really odd to me. So thank you for sharing that experience. That's like educational for me as well. It's also something that um, I want to now educate others about and learn more about um, the experience that you had. I wonder if you have any advice though, on like how to navigate a situation like that with empathy. Sometimes the best thing to do is to step away for a minute. So for example, um, obviously I am not a black woman. I cannot speak to black women's issues. And there have been times when um, black women and black men even have said, you know, that I'm speaking out of turn or that my advocacy is not welcome. What happens in that moment is that initial defensiveness in my chest. Then I step back and examine, what is this person saying? Maybe where are they coming from? Oftentimes what I've found is that it's a place of hurt, right? That often... We want our advocacy to be our own as well, right? As humans, not only do we feel oppressed in whatever in-group we might be in that has been ostracized by the out-group, but now we're advocating and then we see other people advocating and it feels like someone's stepping on our toes, right? Um, That's a, a human reaction to have that sensation of oh gosh, you know, like now this person is is trying to advocate on my behalf. How dare they, right? You know, they don't get to have their own cause. My cause needs to be the most important, which frankly is pretty silly. We all have causes and we all have causes that are important to us on a very personal level. And I think we have to respect them. So I think what I do in that situation when that's happened to me is to just step back. I don't always have to respond. I think about it. And sometimes I do have a response that comes more from a place of, hey, listen, I want to hear where you're coming from. And I want to understand what you're saying. And if you have the time and the willingness to teach me about why you think I am, say, in this situation, racist, or why I shouldn't be speaking up about these issues, please do. I would appreciate you teaching me that. But sometimes, sometimes that person is coming at it from not a good place, right? This is not a good faith assertion. And so time invariably, and that's one thing I think that sometimes gets lost in online discussions is that we feel we have to respond right away. And sometimes it's appropriate to do so, but sometimes you don't have to. You can take some time to kind of ruminate on what's been said. That's kind of the benefit of of using text as a, a format of communication is that you can step away and kind of take some time to think about it. So that would be my advice. That's what I've done in the past. It doesn't always work, though, because, hey, we're human and we mess up. (laughs) Does that help? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Sonia, I think you raised an interesting point about the tension between intersectionality and staying in one's own lane. I've definitely wrestled with that a lot when I see you tweet or Kim Creighton tweet or some other prominent people of color, especially women of color, where I want to lend my voice to the discussion, but I also think that my voice isn't the most important one, and I don't want to center myself. So oftentimes, I'll just reach for the retweet or the like button. Well, the retweet button's more powerful. But I feel like there are conversations that I want to have sometimes that I don't feel comfortable having because I'm afraid of imposing or centering myself. And do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. So in my prior career, I was a lawyer um, and most of the work that I did was in the criminal justice system. And I was always an advocate on behalf of someone else. So when I was a public defender, I was an advocate on behalf of my client. When I was a prosecutor, I was an advocate on behalf of the state. And what that taught me was to kind of take my own self out of the equation 
And so when I am thinking about or talking about an issue that is specific to the concerns of black women and black men or indigenous people um, or, or trans people, um, my, my transgender friends, I know that I can't speak from their perspective. So what I've found is that invariably, if I have a thought about a thing, there is a person who is advocating who actually can come from a place of knowing, of personal experience, um, of living in the body of a person who has that experience, that is saying what I want to say. So what I try to do is find those people as best as I can and amplify them instead of um, speaking. So oftentimes, for example, on Twitter, this means a retweet, right? It means not quote tweeting um, unless it's to say, hey, this is someone you should check out. It just means a straight retweet. I want their ideas to be out there um, unvarnished by my own opinions. So I think that that's one way to, to approach it is if I have this compulsion to have, an, you know, uh, an opinion or, or to, to share my thoughts on um, what it means, for example, to be black um, or what it means to be trans, I'd prefer, first of all, to find someone else who has that idea because all of our ideas have been thought before, <laughs> the vast majority of them. Someone said them. So to find a person who has um, shared those ideas and amplify them before I try to, to spread my own thoughts on the matter. Now, I do think there is a small nuance, Coraline, where if that, that idea hasn't been expressed, it does happen, right, where you have some nuanced idea. I think there are respectful ways to do it. And generally, those are those have a lot to do with phrasing and phrasing like is incredibly important. Sometimes it means like, hey, listen, this is my observation of this thing. Right. I'm not speaking on behalf of people. I can't speak on behalf of this group. But I have observed that this happens and I think there is an injustice here. Um, I think kind of stepping away in your observation, the way that you phrase it as I'm saying this is an outsider to make people know that. Um, to make that very sure um, and, po you know, like that there's no doubt about, about that kind of changes the, the, the thing that you're saying and makes it more palatable, I think. Is there ever a time when it's specifically helpful for someone in the outgroup to, to speak up about something? I feel like there are times when I'm like, I don't want to say this about myself because it sounds like I'm whining or I'm complaining. This is, I mean, this is just a personal feeling I have, but like, do you think there's value in someone from a different group being like, I saw this happen to my friend who I am not in the same demographic as, but like I saw it happen as an outsider and this is, you know, messed up. D does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really excellent example of how to do it right. I think um, that you are coming from the perspective of an observer. So what I think is interesting is that, that people in outgroups who are trying to change these oppressive systems have to talk to each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So like it can't just be people in, in the in-group saying, you know, screaming at the top of our lungs saying, please listen to me. I think there's a process. You you start with people in the in-group screaming at the top of our lungs saying, please listen to me. Then some very astute and open minded members of the out-group hear that screaming and they say, hey, hmm, listen, there's something to this. Maybe I should pay attention. Um, those people then educate other members of the outgroup who aren't really listening right now. That's kind of like the process of communication that I see happening that I think is, is fairly effective. And so what you talked about is a perfect example of that, that you observed this thing happening and you sensed that there was something unjust about it um, and you wanted to share it with people because so there's so much power in sharing personal experiences. Those can often, often be the most po polarizing too, right? If I make some kind of like a vague statement about white's supremacy, I get like tons of likes and I get pushback, but it's not like sometimes the level of vitriol if I talk about a very specific example of something I've seen. But that just means that thing that I talked about, that specific example is way more powerful than some vague assertion. So I think that you doing that is incredibly powerful. And I, you know, I, I would encourage it. Sonia, I have a tactical question for you. Sure. Because it is in the dimension that we're talking about in terms of the experiences of a woman of color, I want to stay in my lane. When you are engaging with someone, though, who's in that outgroup from that particular intersection, is it helpful for me to join that conversation and try to get through to the person that you're talking to as a fellow white person? Or is it better for me to leave that conversation to be between the two of you? I think that's that that answer the answer to that question would differ maybe for another person, but for me personally, I think it's incredibly helpful. Um, something that I've watched happen is that so on 
Twitter, one of the things that I do when I get someone who's particularly egregious and a nasty white supremacist is to to quote tweet what they're saying to expose other people to what's happening, because I think a lot of people aren't aware of how like common these ideas are. Um, and I'll even quote to more, you know, subtle white supremacy as well. And what sometimes happens is I'll see my, you know, what, like a lot of white people jumping in to educate that person or um, to also like uh, put them in their place if it's necessary, if it's something particularly ignorant. So that takes a load off of me because it's really exhausting, as I'm sure all of you understand, to be an advocate all the time. It's really tiring to educate people. So sometimes it can be very powerful that you get to just put yourself as an example out there and put your ideas out there and have other people kind of jump in and help you um, take on some of that emotional labor. So Coraline, I would say, yeah, it's 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 helpful. And, that, and that's my opinion. Maybe there are other people that that might not feel that way, but I find it to be really helpful. I think that um, <clears throat> this is a good time for another tactical question because I'm I'm on the DNI committee at my company and we've only just gotten started, so we haven't really been confronted with trying to push new initiatives together or really get people to change. Uh, but I know that there's going to be some of that white fragility coming once we start trying to push for things that are actually going to change things. Um, and like I'm looking for good tactics for dealing with you know those fragile white people when when they start doing their thing? Sure. Um, that's a really good question and a really hard one to answer. <laughs> that's That would solve so many problems. <laughs> right. But I could give you a straight answer on that. One of the things is um, is education. So that or not, are things that people have researched and written about and studied and actually come up with really good tactics. So I would not say that I'm an expert in any of this, but people like Robin D'Angelo are. Um, she actually runs these kinds of workshops and then wrote her book, White Fragility. It started with as a scholarly paper, and then she fleshed it out into a full book, talking exactly about that, about how to confront um, that kind of defensiveness and that fragility. So I'd recommend you read it. But one of the things she, you know, she talks about is that it's just, it's going to happen, right? Um, and and to know, let people know ahead of time that they're going to feel it can be really empowering for them because they can hopefully, if they're, if they're there in good faith, hopefully catch it in themselves. And then there are some other books that I, um, I really like that I think are informative. One of them is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. And that is exactly what it says. Um, it acknowledges that these conversations are difficult, tricky, and uncomfortable, and that you're going to mess up. Um, and you mess up, you move on, you you learn from, from that mistake. So to create that kind of environment where so if, if, if it's a room full of white people talking amongst themselves about issues of race, I think there's some power in that, actually. Um, that's Those are the conversations that need to be happening. Um, and for that then to therefore be a comfortable space to have to make those mistakes where people can then learn from those mistakes. So creating that environment and creating that um, impression early on, I think, would probably really be effective in, in the groups that you're leading for people to know that this is not a space to be punished. Um, this is not a space where anybody's trying to have a gotcha or scream, oh, you're racist or, you know, attack anybody uh, because it has to start kind of in that place. If it's a conversation among among white people, I think that that's probably the best way to approach it. But I would read those books <laughs> and ask your, you know, ask the people in in your DNI um, initiative to, to read those books as well. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great idea. Certainly, those books will be a good resource. And I, and I think I like the idea of just sort of, of presenting the idea that you know, what's about to come is going to make you uncomfortable and you may want to feel defensive about it and to sort of set the stage for like, this is going to happen so that it makes it a little less surprising. Cause I think that surprise can also be part of what adds like energy to the defensiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that ties back to something that I try to emphasize culturally in tech. And that is that it's important to create spaces where failure is okay, where failure is a learning experience and I hadn't thought of that in terms of discussion about race. There is value in bringing, for example, white people together to talk about race and talk about their internalized white supremacy, their internalized racism in a space where they're not going to make a person of color angry or feel like they're exposing themselves to being called racist, but rather introspecting on racist ideas without having their identity challenged, I guess, or without fear of a very negative consequence of making someone else very, very angry at them. 
Yeah, and that anger will always be well-placed, right? Like the anger of people of color, um, the anger of transgender people, the anger of um, Black Americans, Indigenous people, right? These are all, this is righteous anger. Like I, I, I am angry. <laughs> and I acknowledge that feeling that anger can be really off-putting to some people. And it, now there's a, there's a nuance here, right? It, like, it's like, you do, that brings up the whole like civility thing, right? That oh, we should have these discussions and be civil about it. The time for civility is long past. But I also think that on the other side of this is that white supremacy is something that has to be dismantled by white people. And that people of color, we should spend our energy just being our best selves sometimes, right? We can educate and share our experiences, but that we should be like living great lives um, and not having to spend all our energy trying to dismantle white supremacy. Because I don't know that we can do it on our own. I think white people have to do it. And one of the ways to do that, yep, is exactly what you said, Coraline, is to have those spaces where white people do the work with each other to dismantle white supremacy. And a byproduct of that means like sometimes there, those will be, you know, isolated spaces just for white people to do that work where they will be isolated from um, this anger. But at the same time, I do think it needs to be, um, that's not it, right? There has to be some exposure to the concerns and ideas of people of color as well. So it's hard to find that, that balance sometimes, but I think one way to do it is to have spaces for white people to have these discussions while also not completely siloing themselves from the experiences of people of color and the opinions of people of color. But it's probably a better idea for most white people to start in an environment where they aren't going to be afraid to speak frankly and then kind of, because this is like you're flexing, right? You're flexing a skill um, that is learned over time. You're flexing muscles that probably haven't been flexed. In tech, we like to talk a lot about the fixed versus growth mindset. And I think this applies to that exactly, that you can change the way that you think about issues of race, but it's a process. And one one way to start that process is in a comfortable space. And then I think you have to push, you know, I call it crunchy brain. It's that it's the opposite of flow. <laughs> and it's a thing that applies to writing code as well, right? Is that you have this discomfort and then you have to just keep pushing um, and doing an uncomfortable thing and doing another uncomfortable thing until you achieve some sort of state of growth. But that's usually small incremental changes, right? It's not, it makes no sense to take a brand new junior developer and be like, I want you to build an entire infrastructure, <laughs> right? So these are baby steps. There was a lot in that. Sorry. <laughs> no, not sorry. No, I'm, just, I'm now writing. <laughs> I have a question about something you said earlier, which is the thing you said was talking about people getting defensive when other people are stepping on your like advocacy toes. And Caroline had a really good follow-up question about that in like staying in your lane. But I think there's another aspect of that that I'm curious about, which is that I think a lot of people seem to have this weirdly competitive feeling about like caring about things. Like you'll often see like, why are you caring about this issue when there's this other issue? Yeah. And like this weird hierarchy that like we can only care about one thing at a time, which I don't agree with. And I guess I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that or like maybe how to handle people that are saying that, but also maybe how to balance legitimately caring about many issues at once. I have a t-shirt that says my existence is not a distraction because when Trump was first elected and I started making noise about the effects on transgender rights, people are like, no, there are bigger issues we need to focus on right now. And I was like, yeah. fuck you. Every issue is important. We can work simultaneously. I, I'm so I sorry. Feel, I, I totally agree. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yep. I just had to interject with that. <laughs> I'd love to see this t-shirt. Um, <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I think that people, listen, people get to care about what we care about, right? And often what we care about is informed by our personal experience. That's what makes our advocacy powerful. And this whole idea of, you know, this is more important than this is really kind of silly to me. Actually, I had a discussion. Um, well, well, one of my white male friends was was talking yesterday on Twitter about um, changing rooms in men's bathrooms and the lack of them and how problematic that is. Um, and he was talking about like when he was when his kid was younger, how it was a struggle to change a diaper without a changing table. And he told me he got DMs from women saying, uh, you know, why are you talking about this? There are more important things to talk about. And that's just 
silly, in my opinion, you know, like talk about the thing that matters to you, right? There is space for advocacy and this idea of stepping on people's toes. Like everybody, what's brilliant about advocacy is that your take on a thing is going to be totally different from somebody else's because your lived experiences are different. So the way that you say them is going to be different. And that is, that's what's amazing is that the way that you say them is going to resonate with one person and maybe not with another, but that's why everybody needs to be an advocate because we all have different voices and we're all going to resonate with each other and teach each other in different ways. Even if the ideas that we're saying are the same and a million people have written them, the way that we present them is different. And so that comes from, and that, that the power of that advocacy comes from our individual experiences and the things we care about. Me advocating on behalf of, say, climate change, like I care about the climate, for example, but it's not the thing I'm most passionate about. It's not thing I wake up thinking about and go to bed thinking about. So I'm going to probably stick to talking about issues of race. Um, but I also can think that issues of climate change are really important and can have respect for the people that advocate for that. Everything can be important at the same time. It doesn't all have to be this battle and this fight. I think that's really silly. And I think what ends up happening, this infighting that happens when it comes to advocacy is really toxic and detrimental. In the end, give everybody space. There's plenty of space. Like we live in an unjust world. We live in a world with plenty of problems. The more voices we have, the better. Like we all need to be on board. So yeah, I, I want to see a t-shirt line. I love it. <laughs> At the end of every program, we take a moment to reflect on the conversation that we've just had and share our thoughts and maybe things that we want to try to do to respond to the conversation that we've had, things that we want to change in ourselves or changing the people around us. Um, who would like to go first? I have one. I found it really interesting that we talked about the contradiction between when you're trying to educate yourself and really talk about race and understand it, you need a safe place to do this where you're not going to trigger someone's righteous anger. Okay, place is not Twitter. It's really not. And I think that, that that's a problem for us that as a white person, I'm used to getting to speak my mind because that's part of the power structure. But I really, if I want to learn, I need to find a safe space where I can speak my mind and receive correction in like a constructive way without vitriol. And, and then there's the contradiction of, but you know what? People of color have these feelings and their feelings are legitimate and they are allowed to speak those feelings on Twitter too. That's going to trigger my defensiveness. But then what I need to do is take my question somewhere else. And I would like to suggest to our listeners that if you are looking for such a safe space where you can discuss race and other matters and learn from people, if you donate $1 to our Patreon even, or preferably more, then you get an invitation to the Greater Than Code Slack channel, which is just such a space. There was a kind of a, a side comment you made, Sonia, that resonated with me or that gave me something to think about. And if I'm not misquoting you, I think what you were saying is you were talking about the difference in power and the difference of impact of sharing your own experiences, your own personal experiences with oppression or with oppressive systems over making observations or just sharing facts and how impactful it is when you tell something from your daily life over just saying like transphobia is bad and here's an example of transphobia that I found on the internet. So I think that requires some vulnerability and vulnerability is something I've been struggling with a lot as someone who gets harassed and abused often. But I think it's also more authentic and it's a more authentic way of criticizing a culture that oppresses us. And I want to think more about how I can personalize my advocacy a little more rather than just sort of assuming that people will agree with me. I want to, I want to show them a day in life. And um, thank you for that idea. Absolutely. That's awesome. Something that you also said, Sonia, that really resonated with me was that we care about things that we've experienced like in our personal experiences, and that's what makes our advocacy powerful. I think that in some ways that's like a comforting thing for me to hear because I have in the past worried that like I care so much more maybe about these things that have affected me 
which seems like when I say it like that, it sounds pretty natural, but it makes me feel like, you know, I need to make sure that I'm caring about all of these things, which I do think is important. But I, I, I like the idea that our advocacy is powerful because it comes from this place of passion. And I also think I want to continue thinking about the opposite side of that is that when I'm looking at others and observing their advocacy, thinking about how it's coming from a place of personal experience and passion for them and like being able to see their power as well. And I think thinking about it in that very conscious way is important and also cool and also a good source for empathy. What I'd like to do is actually thank y'all for having this conversation, you know, with me and in front of me, um, because it, it is more chances for me to listen to people who aren't cis white males talk about their issues and how they're thinking about the issues. And I, this is a process I started years ago, basically when I joined Twitter, as I found people talking about these things and just sit back and listen and try and use that to learn as much as I've learned over the years. Um, and so this has been really great for me. Um, and I think my, my takeaway is going to be about the, what you just said recently, Sonia, was about the fixed versus growth mindset in regards to racism. I really like that metaphor, and I think it's a great way to sort of present, like just to frame a discussion, especially in that sort of white-only space where you start grappling with these issues. Talking about it in that manner, I think, is going to be really helpful as a way of like talking about how everyone can unlearn white supremacy as the way to start the process. Uh, and so that's definitely going to be something I'll work on. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you all for having me. It's been an honor to be on this um, with all of you and really excellent questions that made me think about my own approach um, and my own advocacy and how I can you know, be better at it. I think that we can all be advocates and I think that we can all be actors. And so, for example, I will be an advocate probably until the day that I die on issues of race, but I can also be an actor in response to other people's advocacy. Uh, and so I think it's a matter of expending energy in both of those areas that we should all be advocates, but we should also be listeners as well of the advocacy of others and internalize that. So even if I am not myself transgender, it is important for me to understand and listen to the voices of my trans friends and understand and respect their advocacy. Even if I am not an indigenous person, it is important for me to understand and listen to the advocacy of indigenous people. If, even if I'm not a black woman, it is important for me to understand and listen to the advocacy of black women, right? So I can be an advocate, but I can also be an actor. And one of the best ways to start doing that is to amplify the voices of advocates of people who are advocating for things that you may not have personally experienced. You start that process by learning. Um, I think it was a really great point to raise that Twitter is not necessarily the place for this feeling of safety, but it is a place that you can learn a whole lot. I have learned so much about issues that I had no exposure to just by observing um, and amplifying those voices. So the takeaway, I think, is to be, you know, this this idea that we can all be advocates, but we can also be actors for other people. And there is a lot of, you know, power in the numbers um, that we have when we translate that listening and that observation and that learning um, into action. That's a great way to look at that. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much.